Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning the best ways to save money on healthy food, uncovering the secrets to networking like a pro, or busting all of the myths out there about gut health. And yes, those are all real episodes. So if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today's podcast is a really fun one because, well, it is all about fun. We are talking about the science behind fun, what it really means to have fun, and how we can all be having more of it. This is a topic I've been wanting to do for a while because I think it's so easy for us to get caught up in everything we're dealing with on a daily basis, our routines and our responsibilities, that we not only forget to prioritize fun, but we lose sight of what actually is fun for us or what it means to have fun in our lives, which sounds crazy, but it's definitely something that I've dealt with in my own life. Having fun has mental health benefits, literal physical health benefits, and also just quality of life benefits. And in this episode, we'll dive into the science behind all of that and get into tons of pragmatic tips that literally anyone can use to bring more fun into their life. I am so excited to welcome Catherine Price as today's guest. Catherine is a speaker, consultant, and award-winning science journalist whose articles and essays have been featured in the New York Times, Oprah Magazine, The Best American Science Writing, and more. She is the author of several books, including The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again, and How to Break Up with Your Phone. Catherine is also the founder of ScreenLifeBalance.com, and her TED Talk, Why Having Fun is the Secret to a Healthier Life, has been viewed over 1 million times, and it literally just came out. It actually came out the day that we recorded this episode, so that's fun unto itself. Basically, Catherine is the fun expert, and we need it because it's a really neglected research topic. On this episode, we talk about the physical health benefits of having fun, the negative impacts of loneliness on a cellular level and exactly how to combat them, the biggest impediments to fun and how to avoid them, why our phones are so addictive and the number one way to break that addiction, what to do if you don't know how to have fun or what's fun for you, what to do if you don't think you have time to prioritize fun right now, the number one thing everyone does that's limiting our enjoyment, how to deal with fun killers in your circle and find actually fun friends, a key mindset shift to adopt to become a fun magnet yourself, the role of alcohol in having fun, and so much more. As always, Catherine and I would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, and I really want to know what sticks with you most, so definitely screenshot and tag us both on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and she is at underscore Catherine Price. And if you love this episode, please share it with a friend, a family member, a coworker, This topic is hugely important and so, so under-discussed, and I think we can all feel the effects of that in our day-to-day lives. Sharing is also the absolute best way to support the podcast, and it is so, so appreciated. We also have an amazing giveaway to go with this episode. We're giving away five of Catherine's courses to help you have more fun, break up with your phone, and live your best life, so definitely stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out how to enter. Okay, let's get right into it with Catherine Price. Okay, so to kick it off, there are two things that I learned from your book that have literally nothing to do with the subject matter, but I think we have them in common. So I just want to start with, we're both Cal grads, which I love, go Bears. And then we also both seem to have a deathly fear of ticks. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm really just surmising it based on a few little lines you had in there, but I literally brought them over to my husband and I was like, see, this is why I also don't like going off trail. That's so funny, but you live in California, correct? There's ticks everywhere. And also I hike everywhere. I was hiking in Europe once and I was like, oh, there aren't ticks in Europe. Like you don't have to worry about Lyme disease in Europe. And then we came back and there were ticks all over us. And the guy was like, oh yeah, Lyme disease is a big problem here. And I was like, God damn it. Oh, I hate that story a lot. But I was going to say a friend of mine who's a native Californian and is a science journalist told me something that was potentially very useful, which I will share with you. She does a lot of stuff outside and she lives in Berkeley. And she was saying there's some weird thing where there's these lizards in Northern California that a lot of ticks feed on. And I forgot the name of the lizard, but that they have something in their blood that makes them immune to Lyme disease and they pass it on to the ticks. So it's less of a problem in California. Is this true? Do you know of this? It is. I went to this biodynamic super hippie farm after my wedding. And the guy was telling us that he intentionally populated the farm with lizards and also chickens eat ticks or something, but it's significantly better in Northern California than like the Midwest or the East Coast. But everybody should be a little afraid of ticks. I'm afraid of ticks enough to also put it in a published book several times, you know? Yes. Okay. We're like-minded spirits. Yes. It's like the worst. They're the worst. They make the outdoors bad. It's just horrible. (laughs) It's not fair. Okay. So let's get into having fun. I want to start with, is there a biological imperative to having fun? Is it something that we need to do or is it just a cherry on top? I think there is a biological drive for fun. And I'm basing that in part on some of the research I did on play. I define what I call true fun as the combination of playfulness and connection and flow. And there's actually not very much research on fun per se, but there's lots of research on playfulness and connection and flow. And one of the really interesting things about play in particular is that you see playful activities in all sorts of animals, actually including lizards. I found some funny paper that referred to a research study called, it was like fish who leap, juggle, and tease. I mean, there just is a lot of playful behavior in nature, which would suggest that we do have this intrinsic play drive. And I would would take it further and say we have a a desire to have fun. And I think that in terms of fun, it might have something to do with the joy of having new experiences or of just experimenting with new things and that there's a evolutionary benefit to actually not just doing the same thing in the same way all the time. And also there definitely is a benefit of the social connection that comes when you're having fun. And as a social species, we benefit if we're connected with other people. So I think that fun has a drive there as well, where it actually benefits us because it brings us closer to our tribe. Well, and you talked about literal, physical and mental documented health effects of having fun. Well, again, there's not much research on fun per se. And I think that's in part because at least until now hasn't been a great definition of it. And many people think about fun as frivolous. So, you know, honestly, like if someone gave you two research proposals and one was about cancer and one was about fun, you'd probably fund the former. Fair enough. But what I found really interesting is that if you do define fun as I do as playful connected flow, and you look into the benefits associated with playfulness, with connection and with flow, which to clarify is the state we're in when we're so engaged in what we're doing that we actually lose track of time. It's a really active state where you lose your sense of self. You lose your track of time. It's like an athlete in the middle of a game or someone playing a piece of music. And all of those states are very, they're simultaneously energizing and relaxing. And the relaxation part is key because anything that stresses us out is bad for our health because of its increase in cortisol. On the flip side, if you do things that actually relax you, they're good for you. But then also social connection in particular is enormously important for our physical health. And that is true down to the level at which our genes are expressed, which is a scientific way of saying that 
being lonely or isolated can affect which genes are turned on or turned off at particular moments of time, kind of like the way that at certain points in someone's life, you might produce breast milk. That's the results of genes being turned on and off. So loneliness and isolation cause changes that actually can lead to an increased risk of disease. So anything you can do to reduce loneliness and isolation is going to be good for you down to a cellular level, which is kind of crazy to think about. So all that is to say that I came to conclude that having fun is actually a health intervention. Which is absolutely wild. And would you say that you get more of those health benefits if you are doing playful, flowy stuff with your social connection? Like I'm picturing, I think a lot of us, our social connection these days is like you go to a bar or a restaurant with friends and it's enjoyable often. There's often alcohol involved, but you're not necessarily doing a lot of these what you call true fun activities with friends. Do you think that if you have the social connection and you're trying to mitigate that loneliness, that only really works if you're doing true fun activities? Well, no, I don't actually. And I think that you bring up a really important point for me to clarify, which is that I believe that fun is a feeling. It's not actually an activity. Because if you think about the activities you think of as fun, say it's dancing or I don't know, like skiing or something, Sure, sometimes they're incredibly fun, but we've all had experiences where you've done the same thing and it wasn't quite as fun. So it's not dependent directly on the activity. The activity can facilitate fun. But if your goal is to have these moments of playful, connected flow, that's not dependent on any particular activity. You could have that when you're having a conversation with a friend in a bar. You could have that if you're bantering with a rideshare driver or Sure, if you are skiing or you are doing something that you typically have fun. But I mean, I've had fun in doctor's appointments. <laughs> like once you start to define it as playful, connected flow, you realize that these little micro moments and micro opportunities of fun around us all the time. And once you start to name them, you can better appreciate them and collect them as experiences to remember and then savor. So all that is to say, I think it's a feeling. It's not the activity itself. Each of us has different situations that are more likely than others to lead to that feeling. And sometimes it's just serendipitous, right? Like you can't predict. You might just stumble into something that's ridiculously fun that you never could have planned for. We've all had experiences like that too. I was going to ask, is there a way to make going to a bar with a friend more likely to actually be fulfilling and fun in that way versus those nights that we have? And we're just kind of like, well, I went out good for me. I probably could have stayed home. Well, in general, I would say that one of the biggest impediments to fun is anything that distracts you because anything that distracts you is going to kick you out of flow. And since I believe flow is essential to fun, if you're distracted, you're just not going to have fun and stop. And one of the main, if not the main source of distractions for nearly all of us these days is our phones. So I would say that if you're out at the bar with your friend and you've got one part of your attention on your friend or on someone else at the bar or whatever, but you're also just checking your phone, like you pull it out of your pocket or it's on the, the bar next to you, you're not really fully present and therefore you're not going to have fun. So one of the biggest, most effective things you can do just in general in all contexts is to keep your phone out of your hand so that you can connect more with the person who's actually there with you. I've heard even if your phone is face down on the table, it's still distracting you, like you actually need it out of your sight line. Is that true? Yes, it is. And it makes sense if you think about it. If your phone is even within sight, your part of your attention is still trained on the phone, even if it's face down. I always kind of laugh when people kind of dramatically put their phone face down on the table as if now it's so respectful and they're not letting it interrupt the conversation. But in reality, if you can see or sense your phone, you're going to have part of your attention trained on it because 
our brains have been conditioned to associate our phones with the receipt of some kind of reward of a hit of a brain chemical called dopamine, which is the same thing that happens if you win something in a slot machine. So your brain already just associates your phone with pieces of new information or some kind of stimulating content. And so, yeah, if you can see your phone, if you can feel your phone, you're going to be distracted by your phone. And honestly, even if it is out of sight, you may still be feeling a certain longing for it because of this brain conditioning, but it will be better than if it is in your hand or within your sight. I'd love to get into the phone thing a little bit. I know you wrote a whole nother book on this, but I do think that it's so tricky that these things, our phones, are literally designed to hit all of these chemical hotlines in our brain, essentially. And so when we try to go and have other fun, it almost feels boring comparatively because going for a hike or having even a conversation. I've noticed that when I'll go out with people, the conversation we're having, it seems like feels boring to them in a way where they want to reach for their phone and get that dopamine or serotonin hit from scrolling on social media. So I'm curious if you could share a few ways we could overcome the fact that these things are literally designed to blow up our neurology in a way that other forms of fun aren't. Oh, I wouldn't say phones are fun. So <laughs> just to push back, I'd say that they're a major impediment to fun. I mean, some apps can be conducive to it, depending on what you're using it for. But in general, it's really getting in the way. Yes, I, one thing that comes to mind is a comment I once heard by David Greenfield, who founded the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction way back in the 90s, before cell phones were even a thing. And he said one of the biggest problems with tech addiction is that it dulls reality. And so you experience exactly what you're talking about, where suddenly seeing a beautiful sunset or having a conversation with a friend, it's just not as stimulating as the hits of dopamine you get from scrolling through content on Instagram. So to clarify and explain, dopamine is a brain chemical that is often associated in the popular press with pleasure, but that's not entirely accurate. It really is a motivational cue. It's our brain's way of recording when something is worth doing again. So it's the way that we establish habits, right? Like if you eat something that tastes good and is nourishing, you're going to want to eat it again. But it, dopamine is really non-judgmental. There's no discrimination when it comes to our dopamine systems. If you encounter something that we are evolutionarily designed to release dopamine in response to, you're just going to release dopamine, whether or not it's a habit that's good for you. So in the case of seeking out nutritious food, that's great. Or like new experiences that could lead to new discoveries, great. But if it's a cigarette, not so great. If it's a slot machine, not great. And if you look at the way that our apps are designed, they are packed with dopamine triggers, which is very deliberate. They're deliberately designed to mimic slot machines, which are widely considered to be the most addictive machines ever to have been invented. And some of the biggest dopamine triggers, which I encourage everyone to pay attention to and look for the next time you look at your phone, are things like bright colors. There's a reason that the Instagram logo is those pretty shades of pink and orange. It's very appealing. There's a reason that notification bubbles on your phone are that bright red. It's the same red as stop signs. It's the same red as blood. It's there to pull your attention and to release dopamine. Novelty is a huge dopamine trigger. And obviously, you're going to encounter something new every time you reach for your phone. Uncertainty and unpredictability is also an enormous dopamine trigger. And you can see that with slot machines, where there's a pause between when you pull the lever and when you actually see if you won. And you can really see that because even a digital slot machine still has a pause. There's no reason for it to pause. It could tell you right away if you won, but there's still a built-in pause because that releases dopamine, which makes your brain think 
that it's an action that's worth doing again, that you then compulsively repeat again and again. So long story short, because of these dopamine triggers, our brains have been trained to associate checking our phones with the receipt of a reward. And we're motivated to check again and again and again. And then in a really cruel twist, we've also been so conditioned to think that it's worth checking our phones again and again, that when we can't, we experience FOMO, right? And that makes us stressed out. And in order to alleviate that stress, what do we do? Well, we check our phones. And then what do you find when you check your phone? A dopamine trigger. And that reinforces the idea that it was a good idea to check your phone. So once you start to think about our interactions with our phones in terms of our brain chemistry, it becomes obvious why we so often look up from our phones to wonder what happened to the past 45 minutes of our lives. The most Attention-sucking apps are attention-sucking for a reason. They make money off of keeping our attention, and they're designed with very sophisticated tricks to keep us scrolling. So other than quitting cold turkey, can you give us a few really effective tips to try to navigate that relationship a little bit better? Sure. So I think the first thing that many people overlook is to ask yourself what you actually want to be spending your attention on, because your attention is really your most valuable resource, even more so than time, because you could spend time with somebody, but if you're not spending your attention or paying attention to them, it doesn't really matter. I mean, going back to your example of being with a friend in a bar, if your friend's like just scrolling through social media, you might as well have stayed on your couch because you're not actually truly spending time together. So what do you want to pay attention to? What are your own priorities? And then how is your phone getting in the way of that? So I think that's important to ask yourself as just a framing question, because you need to know what you want to be doing before you change your habits. You're never going to be able to break a habit. You can only change a habit. And it's really not a good idea to try to change a habit with your willpower alone, because eventually it's going to wear out, especially when you're trying to resist products and services that have such incentives to keep you hooked on them. So I'd say that's the first thing to do. And then you can start making some practical changes to your phone and to your environment that support those boundaries that you're trying to establish. So for example, I know for a lot of people, social media is a huge issue on their phones. Well, if you know social media is a huge issue, you might not want to have it on your phone. And I know that sounds dramatic, but you can still check it from a desktop, from the browser. You can install it when you want to check it, and then you can uninstall it afterwards. It won't lose any of your data. Believe me, it will even make it really easy to log in if you want it to. If you can't bear to do that, you can also hide the app on an interior page. I mean, don't let Instagram be staring you in the face when you turn on your phone if that's your problem. I do that. And Instagram is part of my job and I have it hidden on a deep page in my phone. So I have to actively search for it to find it. Yeah. You want to make it easy to do the things you're trying to do and harder to do the things you're trying to not do so much. You also should definitely check your notification settings on all of your apps. I think of notifications as interruptions because that's really what they're doing. They're interrupting you. So you need to ask yourself, what do you actually want to be interrupted for? And In the case of social media in particular, I'd really recommend going into the apps and adjusting the notifications in the apps themselves. So for example, I keep using Instagram as an example here, but you can get notified for dozens of things in Instagram. If you go into Instagram settings, you can turn off all of the notifications slash interruptions except the ones you want. So if you only care about comments, for example, you can only leave comments on. Then you can actually in the second step, go into your phone settings and turn off notifications for Instagram. And what you've then done is you've prevented Instagram from interrupting you in general, 
you will only see notifications when you yourself choose to engage with Instagram. And then you will only see the notifications that you care about. So you can use that technique on all of your problematic apps. And if something really is problematic, again, I recommend experimenting with getting it off your phone. Like email and the news were real problems for me, so I don't have them on my phone. And I check them occasionally from the browser on the phone, but it's just enough of a pain to make it so that I don't do it as often. And then I also recommend getting a standalone alarm clock so that your phone is not your alarm clock. Most people use their phone as their alarm clock, but if you think about it, the only way to turn off an alarm clock is to touch the alarm clock. So if your phone's the alarm clock, you've just guaranteed your phone is going to be the first thing you interact with in the morning. And you're going to see, I mean, hopefully you've now you know, minimized your notifications, but you're still going to see the home screen and likely going to get sucked in and you're going to allow somebody else, whether it's someone on a social media platform or a company, right, to hijack your day from the moment you wake up. And when you go to sleep. And when you go to sleep. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. When Zach and I started Healthy Convo Co., we needed to find the easiest way to get conversation cards from our warehouse onto our website and into your hands. I thought it was going to be the hardest part of starting a business, but it wound up being one of the easiest because we just used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling gorgeous ceramics to sip morning tea from or beautiful journals to write prompts from the we're all in this together deck in, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I know as a consumer, I'm way more likely to buy when a website has Shopify. It has all of my information saved, so checkout becomes a one-click situation even on small business sites, which makes me so happy because I love shopping small. But it's not just small. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Liz M, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Liz M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Liz M. Okay, I have a confessional moment here. I actually stalked this company years ago when I was first starting to work with sponsors because I was so obsessed with their product. It didn't work out to work together at the time, but it feels really, really cool years later to be able to share them with you. I really like to use these spots as a product recommendation tool to talk about brands that I am obsessed with, and this company absolutely qualifies, and it just feels really special to be doing this partnership after loving them for so long. I am so excited to share Dry Farm Wines. Years ago, I spent a while researching and tasting and just doing a deep dive into the world of wine, and I was shocked to find out that the vast majority of the wine that we buy at the store actually contains a ton of stuff that they're not required to disclose on the bottle. 
There are 76 additives that are legally approved for use in winemaking in the U.S. We're talking dyes, thickeners, chemicals to make it more tannic or less tannic. Basically, they're taking the fermented grapes and trying to standardize the flavor universally, make it shelf-stable, and rushing the vine-to-bottle process. Not dry farm wines. Dry Farm Wines is leading the natural wine movement by sourcing wines according to the world's strictest criteria. Okay, to start, their grapes are organically and biodynamically grown on small family farms, which is honestly so rare and such a good thing to look for in your wine. The wine itself is totally free from toxic additives, sugar-free, low alcohol, lab-tested for purity, and even keto and paleo approved if that's something that you look for. Wines that have been looked after with this kind of care typically come at a really inaccessible price point, but not dry farm wines. They're significantly more affordable than anything else that I've found of this quality. And the impact of dry farm wines extends far beyond the wine in your bottle. Their farms comprise roughly 7% of all organic vines in Europe, and supporting these small family vineyards helps preserve the healthy soil and dynamic biodiversity, which I love so much and I think is so important. They empower the 600 small family growers that they source from to focus on regenerative farming and to succeed without having to sell out or over-industrialize. Not to mention, they only source from growers who don't irrigate their vines, a process called dry farming, hence the name, which saves roughly 16,000 gallons of water annually. This is the real deal, you guys. Less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's wines are grown to these standards. You can order Dry Farm Wines directly to your door and every box is shipped free of charge. They also have a 100% happiness guarantee, which is absolutely wild. Any bottle you don't love, Dry Farm Wines will replace or refund literally, no questions asked. It is amazing. You can go to dryfarmwines.com slash healthier together to try it for yourself. And when you do, you'll receive an extra bottle in your first box for just one penny when you sign up for a subscription. That's dryfarmwines.com slash healthier together for an extra bottle in your first subscription box for just one penny. Happy sipping. I always thought that I should have the willpower to just have my phone by my bed. It was a me problem. And then I just started charging my phone in the other room at night. And now I have to read to fall asleep. And I can't reach for my phone when I wake up in the morning. And it's like, why was I thinking that that needed to be on me when there was this such an easy solution of just putting it in the other room. Right. I mean, it really makes a huge difference because as you're alluding to, it can help you reclaim an hour or two before bed and an hour or so in the morning and all the time you're sleeping. By making that simple change, you can reclaim control of like half of the day. And sleeping is so important. I mean, phones are hugely interrupting people's sleep, keeping us up later than we intend, interrupting us in the middle of the night, in some cases, getting us up earlier or setting the day on the wrong tone. So that would be a big suggestion. And then something I came up with that also people have found useful is an exercise I call WWW, which is what for, why now, and what else. And it basically is a mindfulness-inspired exercise that is meant as sort of a speed bump for people so that when you pick up your phone on autopilot, you have something that slows you down and tries to ensure that whatever you do next is the result of a conscious choice. So I actually recommend people start the process by putting a hair tie or a rubber band around their phones. And the idea there is that right now, we're so conditioned to just continually reach for our phones that we often don't even notice we've done so until 20, 30, 40 minutes have passed. If you put a band around your phone, 
at least in the beginning, you'll have a split second of being like, why is there a rubber band around my phone? And that is your moment of awareness. The moment when you can recognize that you've picked up your phone and you can then move on to the next step of the exercise, which is to ask yourself these three questions. What for? Why now? And what else? So what for? You just ask yourself, what did I pick up my phone for? What was my purpose? Did I have a purpose? Am I picking it up to send a particular email to buy something on Amazon because it's my friend's birthday? Like Again, did you have a purpose? Was it just kind of random? The next question is why now? So why now is why are you checking your phone in this particular moment? And in many cases, you're going to notice that it's actually an emotional reason where you're picking it up because you're feeling anxious and you want to soothe yourself, which is ironic because you'll probably just get more upset. But, you know, or you <laughs> are bored and you're looking for a distraction or some kind of stimulation, like a piece of news or something because your brain is feeling twitchy or you're lonely and you're hoping that a friend texted you. So what is the driver that's making you reach for your phone right now? And then when, once you've done the what for and why now steps, you move on to the what else, the third step of it. And that's simply to ask yourself, what else could you do instead? And that is really where you start to take back control because you could decide that you want to do something else that will give your brain the reward it was craving, the emotional reward. So if you are feeling lonely, maybe you actually call a friend instead of checking social media, or you could, if you need a distraction or a break, put down your phone and go for a walk outside for a couple minutes. You could decide you want to do nothing, which is something we don't do often enough. There's a real benefit in stillness and boredom. Or you could, at the end of this process, decide, I really do want to be on my phone. I have a purpose or I am enjoying it or whatever. And that's totally fine. Like The point is not to just arbitrarily get you to spend less time on the phone. It's just to prevent us all from acting on autopilot. So what for, why now, and what else? That exercise has been very useful for people. Yeah, it's the little interstitial moments of boredom, like when I'm waiting for one thing to finish or I just have like five minutes. That's what always gets me. And maybe those are the moments I just need to learn to sit and enjoy doing nothing a little bit better. Yeah, or even if you don't enjoy it. It's so funny. I've had a number of like Uber drivers, at least two, ask me if I'm okay because I was just <laughs> looking out the window at clouds. <laughs> I was like, I am okay. But you know, you also could carry a book with you or a notebook. And or that's some- what I used to do before yeah. I had a phone with me all the time. I, I don't think I was ever great at sitting with myself for reasons we probably shouldn't unpack in this podcast, but <laughs> I did time. always carry a book with me and that was fine and satisfying and enjoyable in a way that phones are not to me. Yeah. And there's a real difference in what reading a book does to your brain versus just scrolling through stuff on your phone. Because when you read a book, you actually are really focused on deciphering the words in the page and it's training your brain to be able to focus on something. I wrote an article about it years ago, how it lights up a lot of the same parts of your brain as meditation because you have to focus on each word. Like we all have that feeling where you read a page and you feel like you haven't gotten anything from that page because you're distracted. But when you can bring your attention back over and over and over. That's a really similar process to what meditation actually is. Yes, exactly. Which is really interesting to think about the various ways you can get yourself into that state that we meditate to achieve by doing these other activities, such as just reading a book. And a lot of people will tell me, like, I feel like my attention span is shot. I can't read a book anymore. I can't even read a magazine article. So just to really reinforce this point, like that's a real thing. That is likely because we've been training our brains to be so distractible in large part because of the way we're interacting with our phones. So the more you can do to put your phone aside, silence it, put another room and actually read for 10 minutes, it's really actually quite beneficial for your brain. 
And start little. Like if you are one of those people who's like, my brain is shot, just start little and know that you can build it back into a positive direction. Yeah. And it actually is really heartening because, you know, like if you start a new exercise program, it might take a while for you to feel results. But many people have told me that with phones, when they actually turned their attention, if you will, (laughs) to trying to change their relationship and they actually made a point of trying to build back their attention span, it came back more quickly than they anticipated. So that's actually, I think, really heartening is that you you can get it back. Don't despair. And be kind to yourself because, as you were alluding to earlier, we have a tendency to blame ourselves or just think, oh, I should have more willpower. And we don't realize how deeply we're being manipulated, how our brains are being hacked. That's a term used by people in the industry themselves is brain hacking. So it's not all your fault. 100%. Okay, going back to fun, you mentioned the concept of true fun, and then we have fake fun. Can you kind of explain the difference between them and some signs we can look for to know if we're having true fun versus fake fun? Sure. So just to connect these two ideas, like why are we talking about breaking up our phones and fun? When I wrote How to Break Up With Your Phone, I wrote it for a personal reason. I felt I was spending too much time on my own phone, mostly on eBay and email. So I ended up with more time because I developed better boundaries with my phone. But then I didn't know what to do with that time because I lost sight of things that I was passionate about because I'd been frittering away my time on dumb stuff (laughs) on the internet. And so I ended up asking myself a question I'd asked people when I was researching how to break up with your phone, which was, what's something you say you want to do but supposedly don't have time for? Which I encourage people to ask themselves because before the pandemic, the best statistics I found was that the average person was spending more than four hours a day on their phone, like just their phone, not laptops or computers or televisions or anything. And that's a quarter of our waking lives. It's 60 full days a year, right? So it's a lot of time. Anyway, I ended up deciding to learn guitar and I signed up for this class and it was just this euphoric experience that went way beyond the skills we were learning. And the best word I could think of to describe the feeling was fun. And so that's why I ended up writing a book about fun, is that I wanted to understand what that feeling was and to figure out how to have more of it. But as I was saying earlier, it was really interesting because there isn't a good definition of fun. In the dictionary, it says that fun is lighthearted pleasure or amusement. But if you ask people to tell you about experiences in which they had a lot of fun, which I did. I collected thousands of stories from people from all around the world. They're actually quite profound. You know, I'd read these stories and I, to this day, like I'll have a huge smile on my face, but I also often am teary because there's something just so, I don't know, life affirming and human about all these stories people tell you. So I decided I needed to come up with my own definition. And as I was saying, the definition I came up with was that fun, or as I call it, true fun happens when three states overlap and the states are playfulness, connection, and flow. And just to go into that a little bit more, by playfulness, I don't mean that you have to play games. I am not someone who makes believe. (laughs) You don't have to do charades or something to be playful. It's really just having a lighthearted attitude and not taking yourself too seriously and letting go of perfectionism, which is so important and so hard. And then with connection, that refers to this feeling of having a special shared experience. And I do think that it's possible for people to sometimes have fun alone, but most of the stories people shared with me had other people on them. And that was true even for people who said they were introverts, which was really interesting. And then flow, as we were talking about before, is the state when you're just so actively engaged and present and focused on what you're doing that you can even lose track of time. It's very different. It's worth noting from what's known as junk flow, which is much more of a passive hypnotized state that we get into 
Like scrolling TikTok. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or watching the 17th episode of a television show or something. Yeah. So the reason I called that state true fun is because I wanted to contrast it with activities and products that are marketed to us as fun, but that don't produce that state. And social media is a big offender there. And so I refer to anything that's marketed to us as fun, but that doesn't actually produce playful connected flow, I call fake fun. And the goal there is to help us all become much more intentional about how we spend our leisure time. So I think that if you can divide your uses of your leisure time into different categories, it's a lot easier to make sure you feel good about how you're spending it. So you have true fun, which is great. You have fake fun, give rid of that. And then I also do think there's a big middle category of activities that are nourishing or relaxing or enjoyable that wouldn't qualify as true fun by my definition, but that by all means you should keep doing if you enjoy. So that would be stuff like reading a book or watching a movie or watching your favorite TV show, but not to the point of your eyes glazing over or taking a bath, stuff like that. Go for it. That's perfectly good use of your time. The point is really to just not waste your leisure time. And you can't necessarily give me a list of true fun activities because that's going to differ for every single person, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think that playful connected flow is a universal definition of fun. But each of us finds that or is more likely to experience true fun in different contexts. So I actually think about each of us as having a collection of what I call fun magnets, which are basically the activities or the people or the settings that are the most likely to generate fun for us personally. So they're not guaranteed to generate fun because again, like fun's a feeling, it's not the activity. But for example, I know that there's a certain group of friends from college that I nearly universally have fun when I'm with them. So I should go out of my way to spend time with those people because they're fun magnets. Or there's a particular group of people I love playing music with. So I make a point to prioritize doing that. And I think the benefit there is, as I just alluded to, is to have a better sense of what's likely to generate fun for you so that you can actually put those things on your schedule or make space for them, right? Because you can't plan for fun. Like fun is like romance. Like if you try to force it, it's going to run away. But you can certainly set the stage for it. And one way you can do that is to just get a better sense of your fun magnets and then prioritize those. What if you look at your life and you're like, I don't have any fun magnets. I don't have anything fun in my life. And I don't even know what having fun would be for me. (laughs) Well, you're not alone. So even in the past week or so, I've been asking people to think back on their lives and share something that stands out, an experience that stands out to them as having been, as I put it, so fun. And it's really interesting because no one has been like, oh yeah, immediately here's my story. Some people just haven't answered at all. And then some people will take a minute or two of reflection. Then once they get going, they're able to do it. So I'd say if if nothing comes to mind right now, don't beat yourself up. Don't panic. <laughs> don't panic. You're not an intrinsically unfun person. <laughs> You know, I think that many of us at least are very out of practice with fun and we've really been leaning into our brain's natural tendency to want to focus on negative stuff, which is a side note, like our brains naturally want to pay attention to stuff that's scary because evolutionarily that's really helpful because you're aware of threats. I mean, it's really good for the survival of your species if you're attuned to threats, but It's been a long time of very threatening news and the pandemic and everything. So we are all really veering too far in that direction. So it makes sense if you're having trouble thinking about positive stuff right now. But it's like a muscle. Like if you start to pay attention to it and do it more, 
you may start to find all of a sudden these memories come back where you're like, oh, yes, that was playful connected flow. It doesn't have to have happened on vacation. You don't need to have an exotic locale to have fun. You could have fun yesterday just talking to, I don't know, like your mailman for like three minutes. That could have been a moment of fun. We don't need to set the bar too high. So yeah, I would say set the bar low would be one suggestion. Don't beat yourself up. Do perhaps spend a couple minutes tonight, put your phone in the other room. And then instead, because it's good to have an alternative, get yourself a piece of paper and just ask yourself, what are some experiences that you can recall from your past, whether recent or going further back that stand out to you as really having been fun. And then just start to notice who were you with? What were you doing? Where were you? And then once you have a list of three to five of these things, start to look for themes. Are there any people that you're like, no, that friend, I just, I seem to always have fun when I'm with that person. Or every time I went to summer camp, I was really happy and I had a lot of fun. Just look for themes. I think my biggest message is don't beat yourself up if if it doesn't come easily because we are out of practice. But I can tell you from personal experience that once you start to tune into fun more and prioritize it more, it becomes a lot easier. And it's also really wonderful because if you're like going on a diet, you're restricting yourself. But trying to have more fun is like going on a diet where your whole point is to eat more delicious foods. (laughs) So it's very self-reinforcing once you kind of get your wheels turning, if that makes sense. There's inertia, but then once you get going, it will become easier. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. If you guys have been following my caffeine journey over on Instagram, then you probably know by now that I've been experimenting with things like decaf coffee, matcha, and other small doses of caffeine in the spirit of getting some energy without stoking my anxiety and getting all of the amazing benefits those ingredients offer. That is one of the many reasons I've been so excited about mud water. I actually wrote about mud water way back in my editorial days, and I feel like they have only gotten more impressive since then. Mudwater's signature product is a coffee alternative consisting of organic ingredients lauded for their health and performance benefits. It has just a fraction of the amount of caffeine in coffee and gives you natural energy, focus, and more without all of the jitters and crashes. Mudwater is made with amazing organic ingredients like cacao, masala chai, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon. I mean, so many ingredients that come up over and over in my Ask the Doctor episodes Every ingredient has a purpose. The cacao and chai have been researched to improve mood. Turmeric can reduce inflammation and soreness, and the cinnamon serves as a great source of antioxidants. Mudwater also includes four adaptogenic mushrooms, chaga, cordyceps, reishi, and lion's mane to make you feel alert, support physical performance, and strengthen your immune system. It also tastes so good. It's like a chocolatey chai. It feels really rich and earthy and grounding, especially when you make it into a latte. They also have a new rest blend that's 100% caffeine-free and made with ingredients designed to help you wind down, including ashwagandha, passionflower, and reishi. If you're the kind of person who reaches for a glass of wine at the end of a long day, I would highly encourage experimenting with the rest blend. When I drink it, it floods me with a sense of relaxed calm, but I don't feel groggy or hungover at all the next day. Both products are Whole30 approved, non-GMO, 100% USDA organic, vegan, and kosher certified. 
If you want to see what all of the hype is about and try Mudwater for yourself, go to mudwater.com slash Liz M and use code Liz M for 15% off your order. That's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com slash Liz M and code Liz M for 15% off at checkout. I can't wait for you to experience all of the benefits of incorporating these beautiful rituals into your life. I want to talk about a few fun hurdles. So you're learning to play guitar thing. I think that's amazing. So cool. And I often will want to do something like that, but it feels hard at the end of a long day. Like, oh, I've put in so much work. I don't want to like learn a language or learn a new skill. I just want to flop on the couch and watch TV. True fun feels comparatively like homework kind of when fake fun just feels so easy. It's the lowest hanging fruit. How do we get around that? Well, fake fun is like junk food, right? It's going to give you a quick fix of dopamine because that's what it's designed to do. But ultimately, it's not very nourishing. Do pay attention to how activities make you feel. Like when you said you're not learning a new language, I'm thinking, of course you're not, because that doesn't sound fun at all unless you're in France. I mean, sitting there with Duolingo or doing flashcards doesn't sound, that sounds like a homework assignment. So pay attention to how you feel. And I think this is in general. If you start to tune into how you're, body feels and how your mind feels when you're doing particular things, it's going to become a lot clearer very quickly that, for example, even though you're initially drawn to that mindless scrolling on your phone, that you actually feel kind of gross afterwards. Or that maybe you're doing something that you thought would be fun, but it doesn't actually feel fun. Like there was a person during my research who told me that participating in the research helped her realize why she thought that she was doing all this stuff for fun. She was signing up for classes and she was going to lectures and doing this stuff. And she said, once she started to reflect on it, she realized, oh no, that was actually more for self-improvement. It was more like you're saying, it was extra work. It didn't feel fun. You know, what felt fun might've been going dancing with her friends or doing something else. So I think if it feels like homework, then you're not doing it right. With that said, it is going to take a bit of initiative for you to actually put yourself in situations where true fun is likely to occur, because it's probably not going to happen if you're sitting alone on your couch. It's just not. But again, I would really stress the point that once you get a taste of it and you remember or discover for the first time how good it feels, it'll be worth the effort. My guitar class is all the way across town. I have to work out bedtime duty with my husband so that I can go to it and go to my various musical things. I have to carve out time on my Wednesday nights. I mean, even today, like I'm feeling kind of tired, but I know from past experience how worth it it will be that I have never regretted having gotten myself out of the house and gone to class, but I have definitely regretted not doing it. So I think you got to have a little bit of a leap of faith. And also believe me when I say that we all feel really exhausted right now, (laughs) but having fun is a very energizing and rejuvenating state. So if you do make it out of the house and off your couch and you have fun, you're going to have a boost of energy that is going to lift you up in the moment and actually stay with you. I mean, it's amazing to talk with people about past experiences of fun and then just watch their demeanor change. They actually light up and they start to exude this energy, even though what they're telling you about in some cases happened years ago. I mean, it's really amazing. So leap of faith, you do sometimes have to put some effort into it. One easy way to do this, though, is to just ask yourself, is there anything you're curious about trying? Is there anything you could like attend? And don't think that it has to be a commitment that you have to do what I do and go to the same class for years. Just find something to do this weekend and invite a friend to go with you. 
doesn't have to be that big. To the point of the woman in your survey who is stuck on the cycle of self-improvement, I have that too where I'm so, you've talked about how we're addicted to productivity as a society and how that all happened. But I always have this voice in the back of my mind that's like, this is good for you, even when it's something that I ostensibly really love doing. Like when I'm hiking, which is my favorite activity in the entire world, I have this little voice in the back of my head that's like, oh, you're out in nature and that's good for your mental health. So that's why you're enjoying this. Or like, oh, you're moving your body so you're getting stronger and that's why it's rewarded. Is there a way to separate ourselves from society is pushing us towards productivity and self-improvement at all moments. Is there a way to separate that from our brains and just lean into fun? Well, I think you bring up a really interesting point because even when I talk about fun, you know, I'll talk about the health benefits of fun or how fun is good for our creativity. And I like to preface it by saying the most important reason to have fun is that it is fun. And for whatever reason, many of us feel guilty about allowing ourselves to have fun or even allowing ourselves to enjoy our own lives. I think it's fine to be pleased with yourself for doing something that's objectively good for your health. Like there's nothing wrong with giving yourself credit where credit's due, but make sure that you're also elevating the enjoyment up to be at the same level, if not higher than those other benefits. So yeah, it's great for your health, but you also really enjoy it. That's so important. If you're having fun, that's amazing. Anything that brings you fun is a treasure. You should be prioritizing that above nearly everything else. It's just such a wonderfully joyful, connected state to be in. And I would also say that the more fun we have individually, the more we'll be able to connect and be present for other people in our lives. If you have a partner, if you have a kid, even your friends or your work, whatever, your reserves will be so much fuller. I think we often overlook that. But yeah, I would just remind yourself, if your brain is going, I'm so happy I'm hiking because it's good for me, also say yes, and I'm having a wonderful time. Literally, do you think just that self-talk, that meditative moment on that thought is enough to kind of elevate it or boost it? I think in many cases it would be. I mean, I think it will take practice and training because it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to actually believe it. But if you practice it enough, I think you will eventually come to believe it. I do feel like there is a deep need for fun that many of us have been ignoring or squelching for years. And once you start to experience it again, at least in my case, and I have a wonderful life. I'm very happy. I have a wonderful relationship. I mean, no complaints. But when I started to experience this feeling of freedom that came from fun, I just realized how desperately thirsty I was for it. So I think once you start to experience it, you may be surprised by how deep that thirst is, how deep that hunger is that you're just not aware of right now because we've been kind of papering over it. What if somebody said, I don't have time for fun. I just got to get through this life period where my kids are small or I'm working so hard and they just don't have time for it right now. I think that's a common misconception because you're assuming that fun requires you to do something outside of your normal life, which is not necessarily true. And I mean, if we're honest about it, you don't have time to prioritize fun, but you do have time to keep up with Instagram or you do have time to watch, I don't know, six seasons of your favorite show over the course of a month or something, but you don't have time to do anything else that might generate fun. I do encourage people to question, push back on themselves gently about that statement, but also you can have fun in everyday moments. I mean, you can find playfulness and connection and flow independently, if they, even if they're not occurring altogether. 
and many more moments than we realize. You may also already be having moments of fun that you are not noticing because you haven't given them a name. One example I really love that someone shared with me in terms of how mundane and free, because that's another misconception is that fun takes a lot of money. But one of my favorite examples was a story this guy told me about how he had had, as he put it, two hours of true fun. And all he was doing was sitting on this park bench with his nephew, and they were trying to catch leaves as they fell off of a tree. So I just thought it was a beautiful example of how it's making the idea really literal that there are these opportunities around us that we need to learn to reach out and grab. So I would say to the person who says, I don't have time. Well, we do have time. We have more time than we realize. We're in many cases, frittering it away on things that we objectively know are meaningless. And just open yourself up to these little tiny moments, you know, in that case, yeah, he said he spent two hours. But if you're with your kid waiting for the bus, and there's a tree, like, (laughs) three minutes of potential fun right there, you know, tune into it. I also would imagine, I don't know if there's any science behind this, that like they say, meditation helps you actually get your time back because it energizes you. It makes you more able to focus that having fun would make the rest of your time more easy to use in a valuable way. I think it definitely does. And I think that has a lot to do with flow because flow is a very highly energized and creative and productive state. And flow begets flow. So the more you're in flow having fun, the easier it will be to be in flow and other things you're doing in your life. So I think the main reason to have fun ideally would be because it's fun, but there really are all these other amazing benefits that come from prioritizing fun because of the playful connected flow idea. And I've certainly experienced that myself. I'm just so much more focused and happier and less lonely (laughs) and more joyful than I was before starting this project. What if somebody was like, the people in my life aren't facilitating fun for me, but I can't ditch them for whatever reason, and I don't know how to go find new people who will facilitate fun for me? Well, there are certainly people who are like legitimately wet blankets, you know, who are going to be fun killers. And in many cases, that's because they're just super negative, or they're very judgmental, or they make you feel judged, or they make you feel awkward or uncomfortable. So this is somewhat tangential, but I think really relevant. I asked people during my research to describe to me someone from their life whom they would consider to be a quote, fun person. And I was just kind of curious. And then I said, what about that person makes them fun? I don't know what I was assuming. I don't think I was assuming anything, but you would think that they would have been talking about people who were total extroverts, lives of the party, et cetera. There were some of those people, but a lot of the characteristics they mentioned were not that at all. They would say things like, I always feel comfortable in their presence, or they're always up for trying something new, or they laugh really easily. They're just really comfortable to be around. And it made me think, first of all, it shows that being a quote, fun person doesn't require being extroverted. Second, it's something we all can train ourselves to do. But going back to what you were asking me about, I think that that also shows why there's certain people who aren't fun to be around. Because if they don't go along easily, if they're always shooting down ideas, they're always negative, they're a wet blanket, that is going to kill the the potential for fun because you're going to feel self-conscious. The moment you feel self-conscious, you're by definition not in flow, and then you can't have fun. So I would say that there are obviously certain people, perhaps family members, perhaps colleagues that you can't totally avoid. But we do have some discretion in terms of who we spend our remaining time with. So if you have the choice of spending time with someone who sucks the fun out of every situation, and honestly, even being alone and doing something on your own that's enjoyable, I'd probably pick the latter. And then in terms of finding people who knew people to have fun with, I think getting out there in the world and trying new stuff is the way to do that. 
because that's how you meet new people. Just as an example, the people that I play guitar with, we now play music together out of class. We hang out after class in a parking lot and we spend a lot of our social time together. And it's been one of the most beautiful results of thinking and writing about fun because it's a whole new community of people that I met. I mean, honestly, it's all the result of asking myself that question of what do I supposedly want to do, but say that I don't have time for. That has changed my life in so many ways and introduced me to really my most important community is the people I've met through this. So you got to put yourself out there. But there are people who have shared interests with you and a shared enthusiasm for life. Like not everyone is doom and gloom. It's not just all wet blankets. And once you find a group of those people, hang on to them and prioritize them. Can you share a few of those ways that we can be that fun, attracting person? I love that part in the book. I think there's a number of things that we each can do. I mean, one is to adopt the philosophy of yes and, which is something from improv comedy, where basically if you've seen improv comedy, when you're making stuff up spontaneously on stage. Side note, I've taken improv comedy classes and they're, I I mean, not a fun magnet. I'm so bad at it. It was so miserable, but I love improv comedy. I love watching it. So there are people building scenes from scratch on stage. And as I learned from personal experience, if someone has an idea that they put forth and then the other person shoots it down and if I was like, I'm Santa Claus and you're like, no, you're not. You just totally killed the scene and where are you supposed to go? Instead, you're supposed to say yes, and then you're supposed to build on that idea. So you're constantly providing new material for the scene. And as many people in improv comedy have pointed out, it's a philosophy that can be applied to life as well, of basically not shooting down ideas, instead agreeing with them and building on them. So I think trying to notice your own impulse to respond with criticism or respond with negativity, or even express self-criticism, that might not seem immediately like it would be a problem for other people for you to say something self-deprecating, but you're actually, by criticizing yourself, encouraging other people to tune into that self-critic for themselves. So as much as you can, turn down your own inner critic. Don't let that out. Certainly don't criticize other people and try to see what would happen if you just kind of went with the flow. And then also don't put pressure on yourself to be the funny person. Instead, just find opportunities to laugh. Or if you're a little bit nervous about trying something new, try to just push yourself to do it. If you can cultivate those aspects of yourself, you're going to create an environment that's more conducive for fun for everyone. I think also really trying to figure out ways to help make other people feel seen and appreciated, asking them questions, laughing along, anything you can do to make other people feel comfortable is going to make it more likely for everyone to have fun. And it's truly a gift that you will be giving other people because Everyone wants to have a good time and have a good conversation and a good experience, but so many of us feel awkward. So the more you can do to help other people feel comfortable in your presence, the more likely they'll be to get into a mindset that then results in fun for everyone. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. If you listened to the NSFW sex Q&A episode back in November, and I know a lot of you did, it was one of our most popular episodes ever. And you might remember my amazing guest, Vanessa Marin. Vanessa is a licensed psychotherapist with 20 plus years of experience in the sex therapy field. She's devoted to demystifying, debunking, and de-shamifying the conversations that we have around sex. And if you didn't know, she actually has a podcast of her own called Pillow Talks, which she hosts with her husband, Xander. On Pillow Talks, they focus on taking the intimidation out of intimacy and help you have more fun in the bedroom. They talk about everything from mismatched sex drives to hygiene to attachment styles, and their tips are so actionable and easy to incorporate into your life. 
Vanessa and Xander give you step-by-step techniques and even script things out for you if you're nervous to talk to your partner about something. It is such fun listening. They're giving these really helpful, informative tips, and they also keep things super casual and funny and share the ups and downs of their own relationships so that you never feel alone. Some of their most popular episodes include When Your Partner Wants Sex But You Don't, How to Get Out of and Prevent Dry Spells, an episode all about increasing desire, and so many topics that are really relevant and important to be talking about. Just scroll through their episode list until you find a topic that's interesting to you because I have honestly never listened to a bad episode of their podcast. To listen, just search for Pillow Talks on your favorite podcast app and hit the follow button. Again, that's Pillow Talks wherever you get your podcasts. I know you are going to love this one. I have a friend who says, like, I'm not that funny myself, but I'm so quick to laugh at other people's humor. And until she said that, I didn't pinpoint it, but I feel like I'm the funniest person in the world around her. And I love that feeling. And it is this beautiful gift that she gives other people is just letting herself laugh unabashedly all the time. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. And actually, as you're saying that, another very practical suggestion would be to not be distracted when you're with other people. So, you know, put your phone away and maybe explain why you're doing it, but give people your full attention because when someone gives you their full attention, especially these days, it's such a gift. People really feel it and they'll really appreciate it. And regardless of whether or not fun ends up happening, the connection is going to be so much stronger. I also love the idea of rebellion being a form of fun. Could you share a few examples of fun enhancing rebellion? Yeah, when I was looking through people's anecdotes, one of the themes that stood out to me was this theme of playful rebellion. We're not talking about breaking the law or something, but just these little things like skinny dipping or just actually my favorite example recently was someone who told me that she had snuck out with some mom friends. They put flasks into their purses and they went out to a 10:30 a.m. showing of the movie Bad Moms. And I was like, that's just amazing. At 10.30 a.m.? Yes, at 10.30 a.m. showing, right? Exactly. So it's like that kind of rebellion. Really, any kind of matinee with a flask probably would qualify or even with that. <laughs> but just little things that break the rules of, quote, responsible adulthood. For example, even when I hang out with my friends from guitar class and we play music in this parking lot, right? We're <laughs> not doing anything illicit in the parking lot. We're singing folk songs. But it's like grown adults, many of whom have kids, are all out together without their kids in a parking lot until, you know, one in the morning. That just feels so rebellious in a very gentle way. Even things like not listening to the news in the car, not listening to educational podcasts or whatever, and instead just playing music and like singing along just because you want to do that in that moment. That's a form of rebellion, like doing things just so that you get a kick out of them. That's the kind of rebellion I'm talking about. I love the idea of playful rebellion. It's something people really do seem to latch onto. And it's a way to help generate fun. Another way, actually, that's if you're like, I don't know how to generate fun. Like, what is she talking about? Another way that you can make it likely to have a bit of fun is to try to do something for someone else that would delight them. Just do something unexpectedly delightful for somebody else, because that is just a really enjoyable thing to do. It brings you closer. And there's this spark of joy that can cross over into fun. I had a friend who found out it was my anniversary with my husband and my husband and I were going to dinner and then the waiter just brought over a glass of champagne and said, this is from Felicia. I'm like, what? And she had listened to where we were going, called the restaurant, you know, gotten them to bring us this surprise glass of champagne. And it was such a little delight. And ever since then, when I find out about birthdays or anniversaries or anything, I try to do that to friends too. 
And I don't know if that counts as like full on true fun, but I just enjoy it so much. It's something you can do. If you're someone who's like, I don't know how to do this for myself. Think about something just unexpectedly delightful you could do for someone you care about and just see what that leads to because it probably will open up avenues to playfulness and connection and maybe even flow. Was that the delight practice in your book or was your delight practice noting little moments of delight in your own life? So the delight practice mentioned in my book was more noticing delights. It was inspired by Ross Gay's book, The Book of Delights. And that idea, which is related, is just to, and this again goes to the idea that right now we're way too trained to focus on the negative. We have to actively do stuff to notice the positive in life. And one really easy and fun way to do so is to just get into the practice of noticing delights, anything that delights you, a pretty cloud, a funny bird, you know, I find a lot of delight and absurdity. And when you notice those things, ideally, you will lift a finger in the air and say out loud delight. I actually have a bracelet on my wrist that says delight that I had made for myself to remind myself of this practice. And then even better is if you share it with someone. So I think this is a good use of technology. Start a delight text chain with a friend or your partner or something. And just when you see something that delights you, text them a picture of it. And and I love it because as an example, I have a friend I reconnected with a couple years ago from college, and he texted me a photo sometime last winter of his windshield with frost on it. And it's a delight. And I love that as an example, because I was like, he had a choice there. It either was a really annoying thing because he was on his way to work and now he had to clean his windshield from frost, or he had the choice to notice the delight in the beauty of the frost crystal and think, I'm going to share it with my friend, Catherine. And he chose that. And then I had a little burst of delight and it made me want to notice delight. So that's the delight practice outlined in the book. But as an additional way to spark delight and to have a little fun in your own life. I really like the idea of what can you proactively do to delight someone else? And I actually really love the idea of doing that for a stranger, you know, just like, what can you do? I love that. It occurs to me as we're talking that I almost went into your book expecting to have you help me find this one fun thing that I need to include in my life every single day, like almost a prescription, because you found your guitar practice or something like that. But it's really more about speckling all of these different types of fun into your life and maybe noticing the fun that's already there. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a combination. It's noticing fun that's already happening, noticing little opportunities throughout your day to build in a little bit more of playfulness, connection, and flow on their own or together. And then also getting a better sense of what your fun magnets are. So what activities and settings and people are the most likely to result in fun for you. Because again, can't guarantee fun is going to result. But if you prioritize those things, you're going to have a much higher likelihood of having fun. So yeah, I think it's a combination. It's sprinkling in these little bits. I think of them as kind of like micro doses of fun. And then also making sure that you have a sense of regular activities that you could prioritize that are likely to generate fun. And then also just leaving space in your life for serendipity to occur, because that's often where fun happens. I don't know. I haven't been on a trip in a long time for vacation, but like back in the day that you'd go on a trip and if you don't plan out every single moment in your day and you in fact speak to people or just allow yourself to be open to what might happen next, those are often the most fun experiences. In fact, I actually wrote a piece once back when the Oprah magazine was a thing and it was for their adventure issue. I 
took a trip that was based entirely on the recommendations of strangers from where I went to everything I did. And I ended up going to Tokyo and having this ridiculous three or four days where everything I did was the results of me showing this flashcard to people that was uh, in Japanese. And it said, like, I am Catherine Price. I'm trying to have an authentic Japanese experience. What do you think I should do? Oh my and I, God. so many things that resulted the last night I ended up in this weird store with these fish tanks that you put your feet into. They were called doctor fish. And it was these little fish nibbling on my dead skin. It was like the most absurd experience, but it was really fun. And I never would have found that in a guidebook. That's so fun. I have to ask if somebody's thinking about the activities that they find the most fun or the most drawn to in their own life, they're thinking about like what had feelings of pleasure in the past. And they're like, it's involved booze. Like wine is fun for me. When I go out with my girlfriends and get really drunk, that's fun for me. How do we navigate that? Like, is that okay? Or is that fake fun? Well, I think each of us knows whether or not it's like crossing the line to a problem. But I would say that that's a frequent theme that people will bring up to me. And actually a question is like, wait, but alcohol is involved. Like, is that okay? And I would say, I think it makes sense that alcohol is often involved in fun for two reasons. First of all, it actually lowers your inhibitions and it helps in many cases your self-critic to shut up for a little bit. And just well, and didn't a- you say you couldn't be like self-conscious and in a state of flow at the same time or something like that? Yeah. So if you can get yourself to be more in the moment and less inhibited, that's going to be very conducive to fun. It would be great if you don't always require alcohol to be in that state, but it makes sense that alcohol would help. And then I also think there's also an element of that rebellion that comes with consuming a substance. Even if you're above 21, there's a reason that in the story I mentioned earlier that the woman tucked flasks into their purses. I don't know what they were actually really drinking, but the idea of being a little bit naughty, like alcohol carries that connotation. So I think it makes total sense that many of our fun experiences involve alcohol. And my only caution would be that you don't want that to go too far. You don't want to be dependent on alcohol in order to have fun. And ideally, maybe you can harness the feeling that alcohol is helping you to have in times of your life when you're not drinking so that you actually can get more accustomed to letting go. Like, why can't we let go without the help of alcohol? I had a girlfriend who was noticing that when she was a little bit tipsy on a boat, she was totally comfortable in her body. And then she was like, wait, why can't I be comfortable in how my body looks in a swimsuit if I'm not just a little bit tipsy? And it completely transfused just like, oh, I'll just tap into that and feel good in my body all the time when I'm in a swimsuit. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And I also think that's why mocktails are a thing, right? There's something even about like the ritual of drinking that it's just interesting to think that you could also do it in a placebo kind of way. Just play around with it. But I wouldn't beat yourself up over it. Again, like you obviously don't want to cross lines to really having a problem, but do play around with the idea of like, huh, it feels really nice to feel this way. What could I do to feel that way when I'm not drinking? I love that. Can you leave us with just one homework assignment, something that listeners could go and do right now if they're like, I would like to bring more fun into my life? Yeah, I would suggest what I was talking about earlier, that tonight make a point of putting your phone in the other room, charging it somewhere separately, getting a piece of paper and just spending 10 or 20 minutes trying to call to mind experiences that stand out to you as having truly been fun, things that you're like, that was so fun. And just make a kind of stream of consciousness record of it. Don't worry if it's hard at first. It might take a little bit to start. If you can't think of anything tonight, just let it percolate. But I think that calling to mind past experiences where you felt this way is the first step in being able to appreciate moments now where you might be able to have more of it and identify more opportunities for the future. 
Can you tell us a little bit about, in your own words, your book, anything else you have going on? I know you had a TED Talk that came out today, which is so exciting. You have some courses. Yes, I do have a TED Talk, which is out about fun. So if you look up TED and my name, Catherine Price, you will find that. Does that feel wild to say? That just must feel like such a crazy milestone. It's definitely strange because I was just thinking, regardless of how many people watch it by TED standards, it's going to be an awful lot of people by my standards. It feels a little exposing in some way. I'm a little self-conscious about it, but apparently I need to work on that as the fun person. I have a website called screenlifebalance.com, which is where I create resources that are devoted to what I call scrolling less and living more. And then I have a bunch of courses and resources on that site, some free, some paid, including things like a social media detox course. And then I've got these two new courses I'm really excited about. One is a 30-day phone breakup, which takes people through the steps of how to break up with your phone, the book on which it's based. And your phone actually breaks up with you because it's through text message. And then a course about having more fun based on my book, The Power of Fun. It's a 14-day course that breaks down some of the stuff we've been talking about into little bite-sized pieces. So if you check out screenlifebalance.com, they're all there. And if people sign up for my newsletter list, I give people a 15% discount on those courses just as a thank you. So that's probably the best way. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for a wonderfully fun conversation, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I don't play favorites with my episode babies, but I really do love this one so much. It's just such an important topic that I feel like we forget about when we're talking about all of these other elements of health and well-being. I would love to hear what you're going to try and what's working for you, so either screenshot and tag me on Instagram or come and join the discussion in the Healthier Together Podcast Club Facebook group, which I will link in the show notes. It is such a fun place to discuss each episode, but it's also filled with a ton of resources like product recommendations, tips from you guys, and so much more. Okay, let's talk giveaway. Catherine has generously agreed to give five winners access to either her How to Have Fun or her 30-day phone breakup course. The choice is yours. To enter, just make sure you're following at Liz Moody and at underscore Catherine Price on Instagram, and then comment on my most recent post, what you loved or learned in this episode. The post does not have to be about the episode. Just mention Catherine so that I know that you're entering. If you are new here, make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We have amazing ones coming up, including one filled with hacks for healthier relationships and one about the best foods to fight inflammation, balance blood sugar, and more. So subscribe, subscribe, subscribe so you do not miss out on anything. Okay, I love you, and I will see you next week on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot, so I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals, but I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium, and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use, and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. 
And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy. And unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found. And the research around Shilajit is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low-caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LizMoody to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LizMoody for 15% off on symbiotica.com.